0: If it's 6 p.m. on a Thursday, that means it's time for Lehigh Valley Discourse here on WDIY 88.1 FM, WDIY.org, and our WDIY app. And we start off with Perspectives with John Pierce. your host, and our engineer this evening is Suri Lishinsky, doing our fine work on the board. Our topic this evening is one that may surprise you. It's enslavement in Bethlehem. You heard right. I didn't say Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, South Carolina. I said Bethlehem, P.A. Is that right, Scott? That's right. So my guest is Professor Scott Gordon, who teaches at Lehigh University, and you've been there for 27 years? I
1: believe this is year 27.
0: Wow. And Scott has his bachelor, master's, and Ph.D. from Harvard University. The bachelor, shall we note, was uh, summa cum laude. Congratulations on that. And he's uh, now the Andrew Mellon Chair at Lehigh University. What does that entail, actually, Scott?
1: It entails a batch of research money. It's a distinguished chair, but distinguished chairs like that come with research funds. So they've been really helpful for me, in particular, for getting Moravian materials translated.
0: And he is chair of the English department.
1: I was chair of the English department. Okay. No longer. No longer. Yep.
0: All right. Professor in the Department of English at Lehigh from 2008 to the present. So we are very close neighbors here, Lehigh University and WDIY. Yes. Let me just mention a couple of books that Scott Gordon has written. The, the list of uh, publications, the articles, is way too long. It would take up all of our time and more. But a couple of the books, Tracing the Earliest Moravian Activity in the Mid-Atlantic, A Guide, and that's published by the Moravian Historical Society just last year. Right. 2022. Correct. And The Letters of Mary Penry, a Single Moravian Woman in Early America. And that's by the Penn State University Press, 2019. Now, Scott, besides being uh, Dr. Gordon, I should say, uh, besides being a professor at a Lehigh University in the English department, is also a board member of various organizations around the Lehigh Valley. For instance, the Sun Inn Preservation Association, the Moravian Archives, Moravian Historical Society and Jacobsburg Historical Society. So, heavy interest in the Moravians.
1: In the Moravians' local history, yes, for sure. Okay.
0: Tell us how that developed for you.
1: Oh, that could take most of our time, too. Uh, I really fell into it. I'm from Boston originally, moved here in 1995.
0: And you have totally lost your Boston accent.
1: You know, I I honestly didn't have much of one. It comes out in certain words. Maybe you'll hear it. I didn't know much about the Moravians when I moved here, became interested in a, a particular individual who was from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, not a place where you think of Moravians, but it turns out he became Moravian in the mid 1760s and I tried to research him it turned out the Moravian archives were a few blocks from my house Um, and I got bitten by the not just the archive bug I think but just how rich this Moravian archive is in learning about Mm -hmm. local history Pennsylvania history
0: now let's remind our listeners that you are a professor of English right not a professor of history
1: right it's strange yeah so I'm a professor of English I came here as a, a doing the kind of research English professors do my first two books were the kind of books that English professors write and then as I said I I sort of fell into this particular interest, and really now what I write and research are are things that look like what history professors do. I publish in journals that history professors would publish in, and I research in historical societies. That's terrific. You've gone
0: with a major interest of yours.
1: Right. And I give credit to Lehigh, really, for, I think, allowing all of its faculty to follow their research interests. Other places, you're hired as an English professor. They want you to be publishing as what English professors would publish, historians, chemists, um I think with Lehigh we have the flexibility to follow our interests. Oh, that's terrific. Yeah.
0: And that's the advice that we should be giving our students too, I think. Sure. Is, is do what you love to do.
1: Because you'll do it willingly, you love to yeah. do it, and you'll do it right. better.
0: Right. You'd be a happier person. Yep. So let's get into the topic of enslaved men and women in the Moravian settlement of Bethlehem. And sure. that's right here, right here in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And you say, Scott, that it's from the 1740s to the 1780s, which is not a very long period.
1: Right. The Moravians settle here in the very early 1740s, and they have enslaved men and women living in the community by the mid-1740s. 1780, as I think we'll discuss, is an important date for the, the final act of enslavement in Bethlehem. You
0: recently gave a talk, and let's give a shout out to the Siegel Museum in Easton about this topic. And that's how I invited you to come on to Perspectives here on WDIY. And I noticed that you constantly use the term enslaved men and women as opposed to slaves.
1: I do. Why? Um, And I noticed that you used the word enslavement in Bethlehem instead of slavery in Bethlehem. Um, I think nowadays people prefer the term enslaved men and women, enslaved people, rather than slaves, because the word slave suggests it's the identity of the individual, whereas saying enslaved men and women preserves the activity of enslaving them. It's something done to them. And I think the word enslavement does that as well, rather than the word slavery, I tend to try to be consistent about saying men and women. I don't really like using the word slaves. I'm not that consistent about slavery versus enslavement, but I think for the same reason, enslavement is a better term. It preserves the activity of doing something to these people.
0: There might be a corollary there with mental illnesses where there's an organization called NAMI, National Mm -hmm. Association for Mental Illness that used to be NAMI the same mm-hmm. National Association for the Mentally Ill. Right. And so that if you say well the person right. is schizophrenic right. that means that's his whole I but identity. Right. Right. So there's something right. along those lines here. It is it is
1: mm-hmm. more difficult. It makes for clumsier sentences and it makes for clumsier, you know, enunciations when you're talking giving a talk, but it's important.
0: So the the congregation of the Moravians actually owned slaves here in Bethlehem?
1: Uh, The congregation did own enslaved men and women in Bethlehem. The story that historians have mostly told for the last, I would say, 25 years has been that the congregation owned all the enslaved people in Bethlehem, and that turns out not to be the case. The congregation did own enslaved people in Bethlehem, and individual Moravians, residents of Bethlehem, only Moravians could live in Bethlehem. Uh, individual moravians owned enslaved people as well so the congregation owned some and individual residents owned some
0: you just said only moravians could live in bethlehem right oh talk to us a little bit about that
1: well bethlehem was a, was was settled by moravians in the 1740s and it was a closed religious settlement Closed doesn't mean it, it had it had impermeable walls around it. There was a lot of movement to and from. But the church owned all the land, it owned all the buildings, and it managed who was allowed to live in Bethlehem. It was a church settlement. So the church, the congregation itself, um, determined whether someone could move to Bethlehem.
0: And presumably the, the land that it occupied was much smaller than Bethlehem today.
1: The original settlement, let's say after the first 20 years, extended to from Church Street, down where the Single Brothers House is and sort of below the Hotel Bethlehem, just south of the Hotel Bethlehem, only up to Market Street, you know, where Market Street branches off as you're going north to the right from Maine. There was a farm complex there, and that was the northern end of the settlement. God's Acre, which is up Market Street at the top of the hill there, that was on the outskirts of the community. And just across from God's Acre was the community store, which was also on the outskirts. If you think about where the Sun Inn is, which is even further north up Maine, that was built deliberately to be a, a good bit north of the community.
0: That was almost suburban Bethlehem.
1: Right, well there was nothing up there. It was, it was backwoods Bethlehem. Right. The Moravians wanted people to visit their settlement, but again, they wanted to control that access. So the store is on the outskirts, And the inn was was even further on the outskirts. The original inn that the Moravians built was on the south side, even further from the community itself. You know, in a typical colonial town, the inn and the store would have been right in the center of town. But in Bethlehem, they were on the outskirts.
0: So the congregation felt that the enslaved men and women were accepted as brothers and sisters, fully integrated into the congregation and community. Yes. Did the enslaved people
1: also feel that way? That's a, that's a difficult question to answer. I think the short answer would be either no or probably not. But it's complicated because it is very difficult to recover the voices and the sentiments of the enslaved people themselves. It's much easier to recover and read at great length the beliefs and attitudes of certainly the, the leaders of the community, the administrators, the authorities, it's much more difficult to recover the voices of the enslaved.
0: There were differences, though, Yeah. most notably that the enslaved Moravians were not free to leave the congregation right. because the congregation did not free them.
1: The congregation owned them. So like you said, I think the, the dominant account by authorities in Bethlehem—and I think this was was what they truly believed— is that they embraced their black members as brothers and sisters. They invited them into the congregation. They became full members. They were baptized. They could take communion. They would worship alongside whites in in the various churches the Moravians built. In the communal period, the first 20 years in Bethlehem, the only buildings, the only residences that were available were the large stone buildings that are still there on Church Street communal sort of dormitory living. Blacks and whites would would sleep alongside one another. They would work in the various trades alongside one another. And in God's Acre, they were buried alongside one another. It wasn't a separate spot for people of African descent versus whites. They were buried, actually, with their living groups. So all the single men were buried together. The single women were buried together. Husbands were buried separate from wives. They were buried in these groups. Moravians called them choirs. So I think authorities really felt that they had fully integrated people of African descent who became members of the church with the rest of the congregation. But there were differences, and one was that because the people of African descent who were church members were enslaved, they were not free to leave the community. Um, White Moravians could come and go as they wished. They could be expelled from the community, too, if they didn't behave well. Um, but that would have had very different consequences for enslaved brothers and sisters who could be expelled and and relocated according to the desires of the church rather than their own desires. If a white Moravian was expelled, he or she could go to Easton or Allentown or Philadelphia, but black brothers and sisters who were enslaved would be relocated at the wishes of the congregation. So that's a significant difference, the inability to leave freely.
0: Yes, indeed. Did you find any examples of... The blacks who might try to escape and be brought back or be punished or that kind of thing?
1: I hadn't for a very long time, but I did this past summer when I really started to research enslavement in Bethlehem. In 1767, a enslaved Moravian named Jacob, he had been born enslaved in South America in what was berbice Guiana. Uh, and had been given as a gift to Moravians. And he came to Bethlehem, I believe he was four years old. His name at that time was Ari, A-R-I. And he went to a Moravian school and was baptized uh, maybe in the 1750s, and he was given the name Jacob. I'll call him Jacob. So by 1767, Jacob would have been uh, in his early 20s, And he wrote to the congregation and said he wasn't really feeling the Bethlehem spirituality. He didn't think it was really settling right with him, and he wanted to leave. He asked them for papers so he could leave. He basically asked for some manumission papers. And I think he left before the congregation actually had a chance to reply. He writes on a certain day, I believe it's in March, and he leaves the next day. He goes to Allentown, and he is brought back to Bethlehem two weeks later
0: and we will hear more about Jacob's story after we take a break. Dear listeners, hang in there. We will be back in just a moment with Dr. Scott Gordon, Lehigh University, who is my guest this evening on Perspectives.
1: Celtic Fair, a
0: Celebration of Celtic Music and Culture from its roots in Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Brittany and Galicia to its branches in Australia, Cape Breton, Canada, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and the Lehigh Valley. Music, interviews, and a weekly culture calendar every Thursday from 7 to 9 here on WDIY. And we're back talking about enslaved men and women in Bethlehem, PA with Dr. Scott Gordon from Lehigh University. Scott, we are talking about uh, slave, um, uh, excuse me, I'm not to use that term, right? Uh, he was uh, a young man, uh, in fact, came to Bethlehem, was sent to Bethlehem. Was sent, right. Uh, at the age of four. Right. From Guiana, right. what's now Guiana, South yes. America. His name was Ari, and they changed it here when he was here to Jacob.
1: When he was baptized, correct. Yes. Right. Most, almost all non white Moravians received new names when they were baptized.
0: And he was not too happy with the circumstances right. in Bethlehem. So right. pick it up from there. He went to yeah. Allentown. So he,
1: he, he left, uh, was gone for about two weeks. He stayed with somebody near Allentown. And the Moravians, not sure how they knew where he was, but they did. And they took him before a justice, uh, Justice John Jennings. And um, John Jennings asked him, didn't you know you were enslaved for life? They, a slave for life, I think was the words. And Jacob seems to say Yes. And the Moravians bring him back. They give him a chance, as they would have given other people who had transgressed in other ways. They gave him a chance to reform. Um, He seemed not to uh, reform, meaning he didn't conform to the the strict Moravian standards. That was pretty brave of him, wasn't it? It It was brave of him. And it's especially brave because the consequence of that became clear. They start talking about... Actually, I think they take a decision to sell him to a friend of the Moravians in New York. So this, I think, would have been a possibility for any enslaved person in Bethlehem, no matter how much they felt embraced by the community and embraced by the fellowship at times. This was always a possibility for them. It's exposed in what happened to Jacob. And that uh, motivated him to reform or at least to show some sort of signs of, of reformation. And the Moravians took these as sincere Moravian authorities, and they relocate him. They reassign him to a farm in Lidditz out in Lancaster County.
0: Do you have any idea how old he was at that point?
1: Um, he would have been 21 or 22. Um, so they send him to Lidditz instead, which was a Moravian community in Lancaster County, um, and he worked on a farm there. He ends up back in Bethlehem later, but that's I think that's an important story because it does show an enslaved Moravian trying to leave the community, not being allowed to leave, they haul him back. Uh, they threaten to sell him.
0: As far as you know, he was never punished the way we hear about whippings. Right. And-
1: There's never, no one's ever found evidence or even a suspicion of physical violence towards enslaved people in Bethlehem. I've never seen any instance no, of that. To
0: their credit. We're talking about the years uh, 1740 to 1780. So something happened in 1780. Yes. What's that? Um, in
1: 1780, Pennsylvania, the Commonwealth, um, in the middle of the Revolutionary War, passes a, what they call a gradual emancipation act. It's still celebrated by historians. The Mount Vernon website, for instance, calls it the first significant abolition legislation in the West. Its most recent historian calls it a continued enslavement law. And it really was because what the law provided for was for enslavers to register their human property in 1780, and if they registered their human property, those individuals would remain enslaved for life. So every county created a register in which enslavers could put the names of men, women, and children that they owned, and those people would remain enslaved for life. Their children that they had after 1780 could also be registered, and those individuals would remain enslaved for a term of 28 years. So it really perpetuated slavery for a very long time in Pennsylvania. The interesting thing about the law with reference to Bethlehem is this, the enslaved register survives. It's at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. It includes about 58 names. And there are four names of people in Bethlehem. So four individuals were recorded in the register. It turns out the congregation, which as we've been discussing, owned enslaved people, registered nobody. So any enslaved property that it owned in 1780 was free by the end of 1780 through the congregation's inaction. That it, is interesting. It, it's very interesting. that We don't know why it didn't register these individuals. Uh, it may very well mean that it did not consider them property, as church authorities had, had sort of implied for many years, that they were equal brothers and sisters. But the church registered nobody. It turns out two residents in Bethlehem, a man named Henry Van Vleck and a man named John Oakley, did register enslaved property. So there were enslaved people in Bethlehem after 1780, but none owned by the congregation. One of the persons freed in 1780 by the Church's inaction, one of the persons who had been enslaved before 1780 and wasn't enslaved after November 1780 was a woman named Hannah. She was the first enslaved individual brought to Bethlehem by an enslaver in 1745, I believe. She lives enslaved in Bethlehem from 1745 to 1780, and then she lives free in in Bethlehem or its surroundings until 1815 when she died. So she was a member of the Moravian congregation for 70 years.
0: 70 years.
1: 70 years.
0: So you've talked about how the uh, enslaved population got to Bethlehem, At least we know about the little boy, Ari, who became Jacob. How about other people? How did they get there?
1: This is something else that I've, I've learned over the last six months. The story that we've largely learned from historians, again, who've written on this topic, is that the congregation itself, the Moravian Church bought enslaved people and brought them to Bethlehem to solve a labor shortage in the congregation's earliest years. And this is the story that's told both by historians and on websites, like the historic Bethlehem Museums and Sites websites, that the congregation began in the early 1740s to purchase enslaved people and bring them to Bethlehem. And it turns out almost no enslaved people got to Bethlehem through that method. Almost the entire population of enslaved men and women in Bethlehem, of which there's between 36 and 45 over, over a 40-year period, almost all of them are either brought here by enslavers who moved to Bethlehem or are given to the church by enslavers who live elsewhere, often in their wills.
0: And there's a term here that you haven't used yet uh, with us, Scott, and that is Moravian.
1: Right. I and other historians use this term to refer to people of African descent who became Moravians. And almost all the enslaved people in Bethlehem, with maybe one or two exceptions, became members of the Church. So they're people of African descent who became Moravians. I know of only one instance in which the Church did purchase an enslaved woman, brought her to Bethlehem, and then sold her about two and a half years later. This was in the 1770s. Her name was Sarah, and she worked in the Sun Tavern at the time, what we now call the Sun Inn. Mm-hmm. She never did become a member of the congregation, so I would never refer to her, for instance, as an Afro-Moravian. I would, you know, she was a person of African descent. Actually, she was African-American, born in America. Um, but most of the enslaved people here, I think it's fair to call them Afro-Moravians because they did become members of the congregation.
0: Tell us a little bit about another couple, uh, Andreas and Magdalena. Ah.
1: Andreas and Magdalena are probably the two most well-known enslaved Moravians in Bethlehem. Both of them arrive in Bethlehem or are are brought to Bethlehem in the 1740s. Andreas is sent to Bethlehem by a New York merchant, a friend of the Moravians named Thomas Noble. He's sent here, I believe, in 1746— along with another enslaved man named Anthony, who was also owned by Thomas Noble. So Andreas is here, owned by the congregation because he's given to the congregation by Noble. Uh, Magdalena is sent to Bethlehem by a Philadelphia official bureaucrat named Charles Brockton. She's sent here in 1747. Brockton remains in Philadelphia. He sends Magdalena up here, he said, for spiritual purposes. They marry eventually. Andreas, or Andrew, dies in 1779, still enslaved to the congregation. Magdalena is freed by her enslaver, Brockton. It's a complicated story, but she's freed by 1760. And she lives as a free black in Bethlehem from 1760 until she dies in 1820. She lives a very long life in Bethlehem.
0: And she stayed in Bethlehem. And she stayed in Bethlehem. There's also a statement you make that the Moravians did not free the enslaved folk because they, according to the Moravians, the uh, enslaved people were better off under the wings of the Moravians.
1: This is probably the most troubling part of the whole story. I think we all understand what it means for individuals to own enslaved people. We've encountered this before. It's a harder thing to get your head around that a church, say, would own enslaved people and consider them brothers and sisters. The Moravian church always said skin color didn't matter. They were concerned with spirituality, not about worldly differences. But that begs the question, well, then why didn't they free their brothers and sisters of African descent if it didn't matter to them? And the answer the Moravian authorities gave on several occasions over many years is that they believed enslaved people were better off, as you say, sort of under the wings of the church in Bethlehem where their spiritual lives would be cared for than if they were free and allowed to leave. Of course, what it betrays is a unwillingness to allow people of African descent to make decisions on their own.
0: Right. It sort of belies the idea that we're all brothers and sisters right. on an equal footing.
1: Right. Some brothers couldn't be trusted to make the decisions to stay in Bethlehem or to leave Bethlehem if they were free to make those decisions.
0: Now, you mentioned that uh, Sarah worked at the Sun Tavern yes. in, at the time. And you also say that the work in taverns and inns was really hard work.
1: It was not a plum assignment, apparently. I'd known this for a number of years. I studied a gunmaker named Andreas Albrecht, who was reassigned from his gunmaking work to the Sun Tavern in 1766. He worked there five years, and he was beaten up a couple times. Again, taverns were places where strangers would stay. They weren't as well-behaved as these sort of dutiful, spiritual Moravians. So taverns I always knew were sort of risky thing, risky places, dangerous places. But there's a remarkable letter of complaint that Magdalena writes to Moravian authorities in 1784. Her husband Andreas is dead, and she feels like he was asked to pay rent while he was still enslaved and doesn't think that was appropriate. And one thing she mentions in that letter is that the church tried to assign Magdalena herself and her husband Andreas to the Sun Tavern, and she says in that letter that he considered it the hardest work of all. It was not an attractive job, maybe because of the danger. I think very long hours. You were always at people's beck and call. You had to deal with drunkenness. You had to deal with drunkenness. Right.
0: So, um, yeah, when I say that the most uh, difficult job of all or most undesirable, you know, when I think of enslaved people, I, right away my mind goes to the cotton fields. Right. So I don't know how you would compare work right. in the cotton fields to right. work in a tavern.
1: Right. And enslaved Moravians, like all Moravians, labored. You know, they labored in the tannery, not a good job. They labored in the kitchen. Alongside white Moravians, they labored as masons. They, they labored as watchmakers. Um, they worked the organ in the church. The jobs tended to be assigned equally. Some of it we would consider very hard labor, some of it you know, less hard. But the one disproportion that I've found is to the taverns enslaved Moravians actually here in Bethlehem and enslaved Moravians in North Carolina. This was sort of the southern version of Bethlehem, what's now Winston-Salem. There, too, a disproportionate number of enslaved people were assigned to taverns.
0: Well, all this is so fascinating, and I would be willing to bet that many of our listeners did not know that there was enslavement in Bethlehem. Dr. Scott Gordon has been my guest this evening on Perspectives, Scott, it's time for us to close shop.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me. I've enjoyed it.
0: Thanks so much. So that's all we have for Perspectives this evening. I'm John Pierce, your host, Sarit Lashinsky, working the board for us. Until we meet again, remember to be gentle with your neighbor. And stay tuned for more Lehigh Valley Discourse.